Lord, we thank you for our Bibles, and we thank you for the discipline of expository preaching, Lord. We, we go places in the Bible where we simply uh, wouldn't go otherwise, would be tempted to avoid, and Lord, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us, and so I pray, Lord, that as we uh, come down the home stretch of this letter, 2 Corinthians, that served us so well over the, this last month of the summer, that you would indeed help us to see why this very portion of Scripture is of shattering importance to our lives and to our mission and to our vocation, uh, to our fellowship. Uh, please come now and tie the pieces of this series together, and we will thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. For over a, a half a century now, our congregation has been a part of a broader movement of churches known as the Evangelical Free Church of America. We uh, were adopted into the EFCA in 1962. I wonder how many of you knew that little bit of trivia. The EFCA has been our home for a while. Um, but it's a movement that have roots that go w- long before our congregation showing up to the team. Uh, it has roots that go back deep into the soil of revivals that stirred among Scandinavian churches in Europe in the 19th century. From its very beginning, the free church has been a movement um, drawn into mission with a passion for the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a hallmark of the evangelical free church. Speaking of our EFCA forebearers, historian Cal Hansen writes, the pioneers, the EFCA pioneers, were motivated by the deep conviction that our Lord might return at any moment and that he would not long delay his coming, that Jesus might return at any moment was the driving force which impelled free church people to missionary activity at home and abroad and caused them daily to examine their walk that they might be ready in the twinkling of an eye to meet their Lord. That's, that's our heritage. Isn't that exciting? I love that. One of the early leaders in the free church was a man named J.G. Princell. And he one time was reflecting in 1882 on the hope that the first century church had of the soon return of the Lord and the kind of bearing that had upon the movement, uh, the free church that was just beginning in the late 19th century. Princell said, The faith of the early church was not that they would be released by death, but that they, without exception, awaited the personal return of Christ to take them to himself, thinking in the morning when they rose, it may be today. Or when they retired in the evening, tonight he may return. They lived a life of watching and waiting. How many of you remember that old song? Watching and waiting. They believed that Jesus would return and establish his kingdom, that he would reign upon the earth. End quote. Well, the free church and the early church both hold to these convictions because Jesus held and holds to these convictions. Consider two verses from Matthew 24. These are the words of our Lord. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Matthew 24, 42 and, and 44. So it's truths like these 
that have led our movement to confess in Article 9 of our Statement of Faith that we believe in the personal, bodily, and premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy. And as our blessed hope, it motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Amen? In other words, something is radically wrong if our eschatological convictions ever lead us to become lazy Christians. Also, I think it's a a sweet providence of the Lord that this sermon falls on Labor Day weekend, right? Something is radically wrong if our eschatological convictions ever lead us to become lazy Christians, Labor Day weekend included. This holiday weekend, we find ourselves in the final stretch of Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. This is the final passage. Our series over these last weeks has been entitled Concerning the Coming of Our Lord. And our focus has been eschatology. Now, don't let that word intimidate you. It's a great word. It means end-time study. End-time study. What the Bible says about the future, in other words. And remember that the first half of this letter dealt mainly with end-time beliefs. That's chapters 1 and 2. The back half of this letter, uh, chapters 2 and 3, deals mainly with end-time behavior. And today's topic is, is very real. It's, it's the question of the relationship between idleness and eschatology. Between inactivity and the end-times. Ought these to be related? Is there, a, is there a necessary causal connection between having a passion for biblical prophecy on the one hand and apathy for the destructive course of this world on the other? I hope not. There better not be. In fact, something's radically wrong if our end-time convictions ever lead us to become lazy Christians. So here's the first of three points today. Point number one. Spiritual sloth is a far more common problem than many of us are prepared to admit. Spiritual sloth is a far more common problem than many of us are prepared to admit. Look with me, if you will, at two verses. We'll look at verse 6 followed by verse 11 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. Now verse 11. We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Hmm. So twice in these verses we read of walking in idleness. You see it? Evidently, there were those in first century Thessalonica that conveniently leveraged an interest in end-time beliefs in order to justify questionable end-time behavior. And they would say, look, haven't we been told by the apostle himself in first Thessalonians 5, 2, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night? 
Or they would quote Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 where they ought to wait for, wait for God's Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, indeed, they had heard Him say that. So you can see the wheels turning for some folks at this point. They're thinking, if Jesus is soon to return, like a thief in the night, and we are to wait for His coming, maybe we need to put the emergency brakes on things like work and give ourselves completely, unreservedly to the discussion of eschatology and study of end-time prophecy. Does that sound reasonable? (laughs) That's unreasonable, actually. That's not okay. Now, you heard the way that Paul critiques these folks in verse 11. He says that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Notice they're idle, they're lazy, but they're still busy. Just not at work. They're busy bodies. He's using a play on words to point out a a serious problem. The one other place that this phrase, this word busybodies is used is in 1 Timothy 5.13. And in 1 Timothy 5.13, it refers to a particular group of women, in this case, in the church of Ephesus. And speaking of these ladies, he says, they learn to be idlers, there's our word, idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. They have too much time on their hands. Now, maybe you're thinking, We don't really see this specific problem in our church or in the broader body of Christ, and and perhaps not in this particular way. Quit your job because you believe that the end is soon. I haven't seen that before. I've been walking with Jesus for 17 years now. Fair enough. But if you pull apart this little cluster of sins and see how, as they come apart, which of these sins that we do own you find that we are guilty of all of these today. Uh, Take the busybody piece, for example. Idle chatter. Gossip. The church is rife with it. And our church is no exception. I wish we were an exception. And if you think that this particular sin of speech, gossiping busybodies, is not that big a deal, then I'd like for you to listen to one of the Statements of one of my favorite pastors writing today. His name is Ray Ortland. You may have heard these words before because I'm so taken with them, but they don't get old to me. Pastor Ray Ortland writes, Gossip, being a busybody, is a sin rarely disciplined, but often more socially destructive than sensational sins. Gossip leaves a wide trail of devastation wherever and however it goes. Word of mouth, email, texting. Gossip erodes trust, destroys morale, and creates an environment of, so, of suspicion where everyone must wonder what's being said behind their backs and whether appearances of friendship are sincere. It ruins, gossip ruins hard-won reputations with cowardly but effective weapons of misrepresentation. Gossip manipulates people into taking sides when no such action is necessary or beneficial. It makes the body of Christ look like the body of Antichrist, destroyers rather than healers. And here's the money quote, in my opinion. Gossip exhausts the energies that we would otherwise devote to positive witness. It robs our Lord of the church He deserves. 
Take those last sentences to the bank. Gossip exhausts the energies. I think that's what was happening here in in first century Corinth. It exhausts the energies we would otherwise devote to positive witness. It robs the Lord of the church he deserves. Amen. Notice in verses 6 and 11, they describe the, the cocktail out of which this busybody mentality emerges. It's idleness. So something's radically wrong if our eschatological convictions ever lead us to become lazy Christians. Turn it another way. Do you ever think that God gave us our capacity to work and that Christ gave us the directive of the Great Commission in large measure just to keep us out of trouble? You know what I mean? I crave structure. I don't know about you. Without work, without the mission to be and make disciples of Jesus, I'm, I'm idle and I'm dangerous. That's why over sabbatical I needed goals, a plan, accountability, prayer. And we got through it. Now, I mentioned there's a cluster of sins here that together may not be our besetting temptation, but if you pull them out from one another, there, there may be some temptations. Idle gossip is one. A theological or doctrinal idleness would be another. And here's what I mean. Some people appear to have absolutely no theological interests apart from eschatology. And I think that's probably what might have been happening in first century Corinth. Some folks read their Bibles, but they do so selectively. They want prophecy, not poetry. They crave eschatology, but they quickly lose interest as it relates to other matters of theology. They carefully study the passages on Antichrist, but seem to have very little interest of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur, himself an authority on Bible prophecy, has a great word for us in this regard. He says, regarding doctrinal idleness, unfortunately, this happens all the time. MacArthur says, I I know people who want to make eschatology the primary litmus test of all theology. Many of them are novices in the faith. They wouldn't be prepared to give a coherent account of the doctrine of justification by faith. They may be ill-equipped to defend any of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, but they consider themselves experts on the timing of the rapture. Or the meaning of the seven seals in Revelation 5-7. to Then he says, Others who fall into this trap are by no means novices. They are Christian leaders, theology professors, but they, they become imbalanced in their passion for a particular eschatological perspective. They allow their zeal for these doctrines to become a barrier to fellowship with brethren who may disagree. So MacArthur closes by saying, My advice to these folks is this, Master the fundamental issues of the doctrine of salvation of sin, of the Holy Spirit, of Christ, of God's Word, of the doctrine of God, and other essential points of Christian doctrine before settling into such a dogmatic stance on eschatological fine points. So, this sin may crop up in different areas. It may be an idleness that leads to uh, gossip and and, uh, living as a busybody, or it may be doctrinal idleness, uh, uninterest in other areas of theology. Paul's authoritative tone in verse 6 is unmistakable. Now, we command you, brothers, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. 
Which brings us to our second point today. Spiritual sloth is not the legacy of apostolic Christianity. Spiritual sloth is not the legacy of apostolic Christianity. Look with me at verses 7 to 10. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Something is is radically wrong if our eschatological convictions ever lead us to become lazy Christians. Notice in verse 6, he speaks of the tradition you receive from us, right? The tradition you receive from us. And based on verses 7 to 10, I think you could argue that that tradition probably had at least two facets to it. One is, is their apostolic example, and the other is their apostolic instruction. The apostolic example is in verses 7 to 9. So Paul and Silas and Timothy didn't just talk a big game in Thessalonica. These guys walked the walk. Through their labor, they gave the church an example to imitate. They didn't unsay with their manner of life what they said in the matter of their doctrine. Uh, The descriptive words in verse 8 are inescapably clear and vivid, aren't they? Toil, labor, we worked. So their lives constantly taught believers in Thessalonica the value of, of laying it all on the line for Jesus. Now remember the, prop, the prophetic themes in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter. Jesus Christ is coming back. Antichrist is soon to appear on the world stage. And so Paul concludes, let's not waste a minute more. Uh, He saw the secular vocations of the saints in Thessalonica to be incredibly strategic with reference to the accomplishment of the Great Commission. If you have work, you'll have resources enough to live on. If you work, you'll avoid the trap of idleness that snares so many, sadly, even in the church. Vocation and mission are the stages upon which we live out our commitment to Jesus Christ and His church. The apostles got this. I mean, their example was sterling. They could have demanded that they be supplied materially, but they didn't in order to give them an example to imitate. In my opinion, one of those, though not an apostle, who followed so closely in the footsteps of these folks was the 19th century prince of the preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon literally worked himself to death. Idleness was not his besetting sin. He died at age 57. But I'm slow to critique the man. In fact, I won't. I'll just quote him. Spurgeon said, If by excessive labor we die before reaching the age of the average man, worn out in the Master's service, then glory be to God. We shall have so much less of this earth and so much more of heaven. 
It is our duty and privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be consumed. And he was at age 57. Spurgeon followed the apostolic example. Well, that's the apostolic example. Let's not forget the apostolic instruction. I'd be remiss not to mention it, and it is an issue in the church today. This teaching is as piercing as it is pithy. Let's look at verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, neither let him eat. If anyone is not willing to work, neither let him eat. You wonder, where would a... That's a very sharp teaching, isn't it? Where would somebody get that idea? You know where I think you might begin? Genesis 3.19. God tells Adam, after the fall, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. And for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. What does Paul say here? If anyone is not willing to work, neither let him eat. Hmm. So the verse is cutting, but it's also careful. Notice he doesn't say, if anyone is not working. No, that would be too broad. If that were the case, we'd have to include perhaps children or those who are actively seeking employment. Like some of you are in the stage right now where your job is to find a job and you're going for it. You are actively seeking employment and you're not yet employed. You're between jobs. Paul does not say if anyone is not working. Notice too, he doesn't say if anyone is unable to work. No, because that would be too narrow, too strict. There are those among us who would be happy to work, but are simply unable to do so, given age or perhaps disability. So he doesn't say if anyone is unable to work. It's very specific. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And I'm sad to say that's too many believers as it is. Maybe in this congregation as well. Mount Evangelical Free Church, if you can, you should be working. At home, in the office, in the classroom, in the neighborhood. It's the unambiguous example and instruction of the apostles. Anything else is idleness. So, We've heard what not to do in point one. And we've heard what we need to do in point two. But like, would you like to know how? Not just to have good advice, but good news. Here's the gospel according to this morning's passage. One final point today. Spiritual sloth can and must be put to death in union with Christ. Spiritual sloth can and must be put to death in union with Christ. Listen to the language of the Apostle Paul, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Now such persons we command 
and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. It is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Spiritual sloth can and must be put to death in union with Christ. Philippians 4.13, Paul says, and perhaps you know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul's doctrine of union with Christ is a game changer, especially as it comes to what you might just call laboring in the Lord, whether the vocation of your work or the calling of our mission. And it's hard to know whether he's talking about vocation or mission in some passages when he talks about the vital connection between union with Christ and hard work. Like in Romans 16.12, he says, Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophena and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Or, Speaking to the church in Corinth, he asks them the rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? What's he talking about? Working in the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, who we referred to a moment ago, was once asked how it was that he accomplished so much in his lifetime. His ministry, he was just a seemingly tireless worker for Christ. And someone once said to him, Mr. Spurgeon, how do you do it all, being just one man. Spurgeon's answer was brilliant. He said, ah, my brother, you have forgotten. There are two of us. There are two of us. Hmm, that's hopeful. Spurgeon saw how sloth could be put to death only in union with Christ. He had a practical theology, as Paul did, of of the presence and empowering of Jesus Christ in his life, and it simply affected everything he did. Think about Paul, 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God who is working in me. Or Colossians 1.29. I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is how Paul thinks about work. This is how he tackles the temptation to idleness and sloth and spiritual laziness. Paul believed that when you are in Christ, you possess membership, if you like, excuse the pun, in the ultimate labor union. Right? So 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. Don't miss the language. Such persons, who? Lazy idlers, he says. Such persons we command and encourage, how? In the Lord Jesus Christ to do their own work quietly and earn their own living. You say, is it the command or the obedience to the command that's in union with Christ? Answer, yes. Or notice how encouraging he is. He 
he uh, warns them and censures them to some degree in for, verse 14, but it's put in the context of an encouragement sandwich in union with Christ. Look at verses 13, 14, and 15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. We become brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus Christ is the true heir of the kingdom, God's Son. We are adopted into fellowship with God through union with Christ. Notice the, the peace in the presence of Christ in, verses, in verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Spiritual sloth can and must be put to death in union with Christ. Jesus Christ, the very first thing He does when He comes into our lives is, is forgives us an entire mountain of sin. And if you come this morning with your heart heavy and if you know that your sins have separated you from an eternal God, we have a gospel for you this morning. A gospel of forgiveness by grace through faith in Christ alone. Your sins need not separate you from a holy God any longer. You can turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ and know that pardon in Christ. And that same pardon in Christ should lead to power in Christ. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, do you work like it at your vocation through the context of this local church in our mission? Something is radically wrong if our eschatological convictions ever lead us to become lazy Christians. So first, spiritual sloth is a far more common problem than any of us might be prepared to admit. Spiritual sloth is, is not the legacy of apostolic Christianity. And spiritual sloth can and must be put to death in union with Christ. It's a great reminder on a Labor Day weekend, especially as we move toward kickoff Sunday and a brand new season of ministry in this church. Speaking of kickoff Sunday, that's next week. Sunday school for all ages begins at 9 a.m. From the nursery to the oldest among us, we have something for you at 9 a.m. Our worship gathering will follow at 10.30. And one week from today, we'll begin a, a major study of the Old Testament prophet Daniel, a series we've entitled Exile in Babylon. I hope to see you next week. Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for every word of Scripture. We recognize, Lord, that if you wrote it, we need it. And I ask, Lord, that you would indeed uh, cut the roots of sloth in our lives. I pray that you would help us uh, not to grow weary in well-doing. I pray, Father, that we would be a church that lives in the strength that you supply so that you would have the glory that you deserve through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us as we ponder this Labor Day weekend uh, what it means to be on the job with Christ. I pray that you would help us to see our vocations not as a 
distraction from the mission, but the, the, the very flesh and blood of how we live out the gospel in the ways that you've uniquely gifted each of us. And Lord, as we think too about the mission that you've given us, Lord, may we get first things first in this church. We exist to be and make disciples of the Lord Jesus. For this we toil, struggling with all your energy that you powerfully work within us. Lord, grant us appropriate rest this holiday weekend. And may we come off that rest ready for a week of mission to be and make disciples of Jesus. Lord, bless this series as it continues to settle on our hearts and prepare us for the season ahead in the prophet Daniel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.